You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 65. On today's show, I interview Steve Keen, the author of Debunking Economics. We talk about Econ Comics, his new comic book that critiques mainstream economics. We also discuss Steve's economic theories and get a crash course in economics. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. We're recording this on August 11th, 2021, amidst the COVID-19 Delta and Lambda spikes. The Black Lives Matter slow burn is going on across the world. A Stop Asian Hate campaign is going on in the U.S., and Broadway is reopening with full hopes that there will be full attendance by the holiday season. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening. I'm Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome economist Steve Keen to the show. Welcome, Steve. Good to be here. Good to be talking about cartoons, too. Yes, exactly. And also, I just want to say that it's 7 a.m. in New York City, and you're in Bangkok, Thailand, where it's 6 p.m. If any bad, uh, like large noise levels come through, it's because there's torrential rain outside. So <laughs> Fantastic. If anybody hears a sudden just deterioration of the sound quality of mine, that's the cause. So, Steve, uh, thank you for joining me today, and thank you for chatting. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 68 these days. I, I live with my age. I've been a critic of economics since I was 18 years old. I did a, a degree in arts and law at the University of Sydney and in the middle of my first year realised that economic theory was massively flawed and I've been fighting it ever since. And I retired as a head of school of, of economics, history and politics at Kingston University in the UK about three years ago. I'm now at the University College London, but my campaign has remained consistent throughout and that's for the sake of humanity, we've got to get rid of mainstream economics. Fantastic. Just because I talk about art on this thing, I have a couple questions for you before we get started, which is, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member or a piece of art that you like? Probably the piece of art is the one I think most about because there was an ex exhibition of uh, Monet's work in Sydney about uh, 30, 40 years ago at least. And there was a painting of the, the, the uh, cathedral at Rouen. I can never pronounce it properly, but R-A-O-U-N or some strange name like that in France. And it was done with a blue colouring overall. And it was such a beautiful object that I literally remember thinking, I would be willing to come back at night and steal this. It was so beautiful. And the only other one that we could compare is actually a piece by Salvador Dali, I think called Madonna and Child. And he painted that with, with dots uh, and dots inside the dots. And when you were close up, all you could see the dots. And when you moved away, you could make out that there was an ear formed by the dots. And you moved, I think, further away, you could see that in the ear was sitting the Madonna and child. And those are probably the two most spectacular works of art I've ever seen. All right, this question, so happy to ask you this. Are you bad or good with money? <laughs> bad. A whole lot of ways. I, I've I've never got involved in speculation. I, what, what I've decided to do has been successful. So like my first wife wanted me to invest in, in, in property back in 1992 or three, I think, in Australia. And I said, no, property's in a bubble and I refuse to ride a bubble. Well, that bubble's gone on for 20 years. So if I'd actually decided to ride the bubble, I, mean, I identified it before anybody else knew it was there. 
And if I've been willing to put my neck out, okay, let's chuck a few thousand, you know, 100,000 Australian dollars at that stage. I could have put a pull potty 500,000 out later. And uh, Max and Stacey, uh, Max Geyser and Stacey Herbert told me about Bitcoin when it was about 10 bucks uh, a, a coin. I, right from the outset, didn't regard it as being money, uh, but I could have afforded a thousand quid and I could have bought a hundred Bitcoin. Um, so I basically haven't indulged in speculation when I could have done, and I think I've suffered because of that, but I haven't done too badly overall. That's hilarious. What we need to do is find a bubble that you can get in on now and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a strong bias towards creating real stuff. Uh, so I'm actually, I'm actually working on a commercial software program right now called Ravel. And the idea is to take over a large part of the spreadsheet market. So I'd rather make my money by contributing something that works rather than writing somebody else's bubble. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to talk about economics, which is a comic book that you wrote. We had a previous guest, Miguel Guerra, who is a comic book illustrator. He, he was on our podcast talking about how he makes a living as an illustrator. And then we also had another discussion about MMT. He reached out and said, hey, I just drew the illustrations for this new comic book. You should check it out. So I did. And that's what we're going to talk about. And also, is this true? I was on Miguel's site. He, it says it's the number one or was the Amazon bestseller in comics and graphic novels and economic theory. Is that true? It, it, it was for a very brief time. It hit number one in both. And I was absolutely delighted. I think I've taken screenshots of the Amazon page on that front. There's all sorts of criticisms one makes of Amazon's, but it's the world's most effective retailing unit. And uh, that's what you, as an author, that's what you keep a check on. So it hit, it certainly hit number one in economic theory. And I think at the same time, it was number one in graphic novels, which was a great combo. Not there anymore, but it was a good, damn good feeling while it lasted. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and so I read it and I, I must admit that a little bit of it went over my head or maybe mm -hmm. a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I did find it entertaining, and you do tell this fake story that I actually sort of thought was real. And the whole time I was like, I have to check out if this is a real story. And then at the very end, you say, not a real story. <laughs> Which one was that about Ricardo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. I'll come back to the Ricardo story and where it came from. And then you also use a, tomb, or a term called Nairu. Which yeah. I only know because I happened to read The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. Oh, yeah. She mm. talks about Nairu, but I was like, you know, how many people know what Nairu is? And maybe everybody does in the economics world. Unfortunately, too many economists know about it because this is one of the, the many, uh, like economics tries to pretend that it's a science. And a large part of what I've been doing is saying, look, if you guys are science scientists, then I'm, I'm the Loch Ness Monster. You know, the, the, what you, your standards are just pathetic. Uh, but what they'll do quite frequently is make up terms that, that sound like they're scientific. So Milton Friedman invented what he called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And what he then was saying effectively, there's a rate of unemployment which guarantees inflation remains constant. That flipped economic theory because he was taken seriously back in the 1970s when there was a high rate of you know, inflation was rising. But plenty before you were born, I guess. 1972, 73? Yep, that's, that's before me. There you go, okay. Well, there was rising inflation at the time, and he said in, in the previous policy used to be to try to maintain a low level of unemployment. That was the sort of Keynesian orientation from the post-war period through to the early 1970s. And he said, no, what we need is to choose a rate of unemployment that means inflation doesn't continue rising. And he called this the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of economists have wasted their lives trying to calculate what the Nehru is. 
two things. First of all, it doesn't exist. And two, when they try to figure out the statistics for it, it goes up and down like a yo-yo. But it, it makes them feel like they're scientific by having a term like Nehru, that they can all talk about at conferences. <laughs> I, just, I just read a book called Billion Dollar Loser oh, yeah. by Reeves Wideman, and it's about WeWork, the rise and fall of it. He was saying that when they were trying to go public, there's EBITDA, oh, yeah. and they created this new term called community-adjusted EBITDA because I guess their EBITDA wasn't the number they needed. It was always negative, yeah. Do you know what EBITDA is? Well, it's earnings before interest and tax, and I presume amortization is the final A there. When firm declares it's what it's earned, I mean, there's, first of all, you know, it's revenue, and that's before it pays anything out. Then it's got to subtract wages and supplier costs from that, and so you, see, you start getting earnings, and earnings before interest and taxation is EBIT, and that's one of the major classifications. Then I'll have earnings after you pay uh, interest and after you pay taxation, and that's really what a firm should be evaluated on. But when you had all these internet companies forming, who once you subtracted the costs from their revenue, you got a negative number, you could no longer use EBIT. So they had, I, I can understand why they invented something about a community valuation to make this stuff look like it was worth something. Pretty amazing, but it just goes to the fact that you can just sort of make up a term and mm. then say, this is mm. really the term you should be looking at. <laughs> Ignore everything else. Yeah, well, I mean, accountants, accountants. I, mean, I've, I never did accounting at university, funnily enough. I've learned a huge amount about accounting by designing my Minsky software. But I didn't do accounting. I did law, as it happens. And accountants will have a whole range of terms. And these have been around for, you know, centuries. The accounting began in the 1500s. So they have terms which make sense, you know, assets, liabilities, equity. And I'll use their terms all the time. But the terms economists have made up, yeah, they're garbage. Okay, so I guess I should point out, since people are listening to this, that when we say your comic book is called Economics, or Economics... It's actually Econ Comics. Econ Comics. Yeah, Econ Comics. And there's, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm taking a bit of a liberty there because there's a guy called Ed Lima, who's a, a mainstream economist or was a mainstream economist. I think, I think he's deceased, but he was also willing to be critical of the flaws of the mainstream. And he wrote a very good paper called "Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics." And econometrics is the economics version of statistics. Like, you know, I have a lot of respect for statisticians, but a lot of econometrics is fantasy stuff really badly fantasy stuff. And what Lima did was say, look, these are ways in which we're conning people if they take the results of our numerical uh, measurements seriously. So let's take the con out of econometrics. And I thought, well, there's con in economics. It's full of con. Let's call it econ comics. And that's where the title came from. Why did you write this? Because you've written other books, but you've never written a comic book before, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a long story behind it. Yeah, I give conference talks before COVID all over the world. There was a conference I was invited to in Canada, in Toronto, in a place called the Fields Institute. And the Fields Institute is the world's leading mathematics centre. It's actually, the mathematicians have what they call the Fields Medal. And it's not actually decided in Canada, it's actually decided, I think, in Germany, but it's the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for mathematicians. And it's given to somebody under 40 who's made major advances in mathematics. And so it was actually originated by a Canadian mathematician called Fields after the Second World War. That's why the Fields Institute exists and awards the Fields Medal in Toronto. The deputy director there became a close friend of mine, still is, a guy called Matthias Griselli. 
and Mateus put on a conference after the financial crisis and I was one of the invited speakers. On the way across on the plane, I was reading an article by, in, in Vox magazine by Larry Summers called uh, Reflections on the New Secular Stagnation Hypothesis by Lawrence H. Summers. I'm reading this thing on the flight and like we mentioned, Nehru was a, a crazy made-up term by Milton Friedman. Nobody had ever used the term ferrier before. Full employment, real interest rate, ferrier. Sammers made it up in this paper, which is based on a conference talk he gave as well. And I'm reading it thinking, he used the term had never existed, never before in the economic literature. And here in this one paper about it, he uses the term 23 bloody times. And I'm reading this thing, you know, reading this thing, kicking, ferrier, 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 ferrier. Sounded like the bastards discovered some new fundamental bloody particle. And they, ha, I know what I can do. I'll write a bit of a satire. So I wrote one slide saying how the scientists at CERN have discovered this new fundamental particle called the ferrier. We all know of CERN, it's the, you know, the research, the incredible accelerator ring, I think it's 50 kilometres in radius or circumference, you know, on the borders of France and Germany and Belgium. And I said, this actually isn't uh, the CERN I'm talking about, it's a much more important CERN based at MIT. The CERN stands for Crazy Economic Rationalisations of Anomalies. So I wrote a slide, you know, as an academic, uh, you know, I'm normally giving fairly serious stuff. I try to be humorous, but it's, there's a serious flavour all the way through. So I wrote this up and I thought, well, I think this is funny, but I don't know how the audience is going to react. The audience was half mathematicians and probably 80% mathematicians and 20% economists, most of them non-mainstream because the Fields Institute now recognises that mainstream economists are a waste of paper. So they tend to invite radical people along, heterodox people rather than the mainstream. So I started giving a talk and the audience was laughing so badly some of them were falling on the floor. <laughs> it actually disturbed my, my presentation. But I then got back and mentioned it to Miguel, Miguel Guerra. Miguel's become a good friend over the years. I said, I think I might write a satire about it. So I wrote up the whole story. And Miguel said, I'd love to illustrate that. So that's where the first one came from. That's the first illustrated cartoon in the book. And then in France, the, that's, that's chapter two. Chapter three is the um, a campaign to eradicate non-orthodox economics in France. And that came about because French non-orthodox economists tried to establish a separate classification for um, non-orthodox economics, or heterodox economics as they call it, in France. So France has got a very hierarchical system. Uh, like in America, when you get a, you become, you do your PhD, you go off to the American Economic Association in January, try to get a job somewhere. You know, it's all individual towards the organisation. In France, you have to be awarded a PhD and then you are classified as being an academic economist and you apply for a job and, and they will send you somewhere in France for the position. We actually know how many academic economists there are. There's 1,800 of them roughly in France. They formed a group called the Society of Appalled Economists saying how appalled they were of the mainstream. Sometime in, I think, 2015, they tried to get a separate formal classification because there was about 300 people who signed up for this separate non-orthodox classification. So that would have taken 300 out of the 1,800. They were almost successful, and they were opposed by a French Nobel Prize winner who blocked the move, and they were stuck amongst the economists. So I, I knew that this group represented about... 15% of, of all economists in France were critical enough of the mainstream to want to join a breakaway group. 
I was going to give a talk at a, a workshop on, on non-orthodox economics for students somewhere in the, in the east of France. And I'm going to, you're going to love this. A bunch of mainstream economists came out with a book attacking non-orthodox thinkers in economics. It's called Le, Le Negotian, I can't pronounce it properly, Le Negotiism Economique Economist and Embarrasser. If you put that into um, Google Translate, what comes back is economic holocaust denialism. <laughs> so they were accusing non-orthodox economists as being like holocaust deniers. I thought, you, you pair of, can I use French on your show? Yes, yes. You pair of cunts. I'm going to get you. <laughs> so on the train, pardon me, I, I, I should have used uh, dicks or, you know, assholes. Or something, but I wasn't particularly... <laughs> it works. It, it, it translates. I wasn't particularly happy. So I'm, on, on the train journey from uh, Paris to this far eastern part of France, I read another satire, and that's, what, that's about the, uh, the reality virus. That was in response to these two economists, Carhook and Zeilerberg, who were arguing for the elimination of people who don't accept mainstream economics. And this was my reply. And then the, the Ricardo bit, you, the, the, it happens with a, like a written one, lightly illustrated about David Ricardo. And how that came about was having written the two cartoons and Miguel had done the illustration, he said, look, we well, need an introduction to this, Steve. Do you mind writing an intro? And I've always been a critic of the theory of comparative advantage. That, that's the argument that countries should specialise in what they're best at and import the remainder, and that'll improve human welfare. And I always regard it as a nonsense argument. And I then, in writing the introduction to the book about how absurd economics is in general, I started to imagine, well, maybe the principles of political economy and taxation weren't written by Ricardo, but written by a card sharp called Tricardo. <laughs> Okay, and it was all a con job, and it all went badly wrong, and, and Ricardo dived in and, and managed to threaten this guy to take over the rights to the book, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I was researching on it, and not, not researching as deeply as, as I would do for an academic piece, you know, checking Wikipedia and stuff like that, and everything I wanted to be true, setting the frame for it, at the Wikipedia level of evidence was true. One part of it, for example, has, has David Ricardo being, before he became an economist, being a stockbroker who got advance warning of the results of the Battle of Waterloo, knowing the British won, and then went onto the stock exchange and ex exclaimed, sell, as though he had back invented that the French had won, caused an absolute panic. Everybody's dumping all their British shares. And then when the, when the prices have plunged, he suddenly declares to his own staff, buy. And the claim was he made a million pounds profit. Now we're talking back in what, 1800, you know, a million pounds. That's a huge amount of money. I've seen since arguments that it was actually false and it may have been uh, one of the other robber barons who, who made the money, but that was good enough for me. I wanted this book to be published close to April Fool's Day. <laughs> in fact, it turned out, and this is true, that the Ricardo's Principles of Political Economy and Taxation was published on the 17th of April. I think 1816. So everything I, I wanted to be feasible about this ended up being true and I could then weave my slightly fictional twist to the story through and that became like a third chapter. And at this stage, Miguel said, oh, mate, like I just can't, I can't, I haven't got the energy all the time to write a third. We'll do a light illustration of this and that became the introduction to the cartoon series. That's so funny that that's the introduction because it, it's my favourite story of the three yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually that's the one where it was like you you peppered in so much historic 
like facts, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, this I'm going to have to go look this up afterwards because this like is a crazy story. <laughs> and you get to the end and you say, well, it's not true, but there's a lot of truth in it, like including that April Fool's joke that you put in there. Yeah, I mean... Like one thing most people don't get, and I'm actually, this is one of those things being I mentioned my age when I began, 68. Um, there was a great English comedy show called Steptoe and Son. Uh, I, I've forgotten his name, but the, uh, I've, I've got the names in the book. But the, uh, the father was a grumpy old sexist bastard, really like a, a curmudgeon. Well, his son was this idealistic type who always wanted to rise up in society. So I made Steptoe and Sons the publishers. And their personalities fitted into the whole. So I, I had a, I had a great lot of. I probably had more fun writing that one than the other, the other two. I must admit. So I'm glad you like it more than the other two. I also have to, to jump back a little bit because I understand that you would be in that group of French economists who are going against the mainstream. Mm, well and truly. <laughs> Very basic question here. What is mainstream economics versus non-mainstream economics? Well, for people who don't practice it, the simple thing is mainstream economics is supply and demand. If I put, you know, I draw an X with my fingers, an intersecting supply and demand curve, that's what the mainstream is built around. When people look at it, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, demand falls as price rises, so that explains a downward sloping demand curve. Price rises is, is sales, right? That explains an upward sloping supply curve. Oh, yeah, seems, seems fair enough. When you dig into it, Every last element of it falls over. And, and the thing is, this has been shown to be mathematically invalid, not just by critics like myself, but even by leading mainstream people. So when they try to, like the diagram first came out of Alfred Marshall, so the idea of supply, supply and demand determining price and quantity, that was Marshall's idea of the, the two scissors, he called it. The scissors of supply and demand are necessary to set price and quantity, and they do it simultaneously. Whereas the previous classical school, and this is where Ricardo and Smith and, and Marx also came from, they said the price is set by the cost of production and then the volume is set by demand. They gave two separate causes. And uh, the classical school, which is, again, Ricardo, Smith, Marx, argued that value in a capitalist society is objective. Value reflects the cost of making something, whereas the neoclassical say it's subjective. The classical school had all sorts of problems of its own, which I've worked on as well. But with the neoclassical school, if you say stuff is subjective, then it instantly makes it, it should make it obvious. It's going to be rather hard to add up numbers when you're saying everything is subjective. So what you then get out of it is a whole series of logical conundrums. When they try to go backwards and give a solid mathematical foundation to the simple old supply and demand stuff, it falls over on the basis of that subjectivity. Think about the idea of, well, actually, I'll start with the simplest one, rising supply curve, and the idea that the higher the quantity you want of something, the price will rise. Now, like you mentioned, you go to an auction, and you're auctioning fish. That makes plenty of sense there, because if there's a small supply of fish, the demand's going to be high, and the price will be bid up. Well, if you don't buy the fish, they're going to go rot, you know? So there's a pressure to buy, okay? That sort of thing. And then people use that sort of rationale for it. We're talking stuff coming out of factories, cost of a, t- a Tesla motor, a motor car, that sort of thing. What they presumed would cause that rising cost of supply was what they call diminishing marginal productivity. Ever heard that piece of jargon? I'm going to say no. <laughs> so it's, all, it's, all, it's all nonsense. What they say is they imagine that you've got this factory full of machines and there's some ideal ratio of workers to machines. Let's say, let's say your ideal ratio is... Four workers per machine. Well, they argue that when the firm starts produ- production, it might have, say, 100 machines, and it's got one worker 
then then you have two workers and finally get to 100 and then 200 and finally your ideal is 400 and that's the, that that will give you the maximum level of output of the firm and then if you want to produce more you've got to have five workers per machine and six workers and seven and eight and stuff like this and therefore you're going to get less productivity per additional worker so they argue that you you've got constant productivity workers being added which they call variable, variable inputs, to a fixed number of machines, demand will be such that you're driven past the ideal point. So each extra worker will add less to output than the previous ones because you have what they call diminishing marginal productivity. That's garbage. <laughs> you walk inside a factory, if, it, if, it, if, if the ideal is four workers per machine and there's 100 machines there and you have four workers, one machine will be operated and 99 will be idle. And what you actually do when you set up a factory, you might hope to start at 50% capacity. And you operated it, and you've, you've, as an engineer, you've designed it so it'll be most efficient when it's being used at 100% capacity. But as you approach it throughout, you're always using the ideal ratio of workers to machines. And that means that that so-called diminishing marginal productivity, which causes that rising supply curve, doesn't exist. When you do empirical research, and there have been numerous empirical studies, they've all found that firms report constant or falling marginal costs, meaning the more volume they produce, the less their costs are. And that's the real world. Mm -hmm. But neoclassicals don't like that. So they actually don't teach their students it, don't research to begin with. And the one guy who did do this research and publish a mainstream book, a guy called Alan Blinder, who was deputy president of the American Economic Association. He was a deputy chairman of a Federal Reserve Bank as well. He did this research, found that marginal cost fell for 89% of firms and does not teach that in his own bloody textbook. Mm. You know, so it's mendacious. The whole damn thing is mendacious. So I'm, I'm pulling it apart. And uh, the trouble is it's plausible and therefore people continue swallowing it. Right, yeah. I mean, I recently, I listened to a podcast called The Investor's Podcast, and they had a guest on recently who is very businessy, I would say conservative, very, you know, likes free market capitalism. Mm -hmm. And he sits there talking, and then he says, you know, I looked back at the data, and after 2008 and all this, and he says, and now I've decided that the government should be spending a bunch of money science and math and all this just because I've looked at the data and it turns out when the government spends big the economy seems to do well yeah and he's like that's never what I thought but I'm just looking back at the data and I'm seeing that so now I'm he didn't say I'm pro big government spending <laughs> but he was sort of like everything I thought I'm just tweaking my thoughts on it well he's um, the good luck to him because he's actually correct and and that's what I wish economics was about you, you if it was a genuine science it'd be saying here are our preconceptions, maybe, tested against the data. All oh, the preconception fails. Uh, what have we got wrong? And how can we get modified and get a more realistic theory over time? Uh, the contest between theory and observation is a major part of the development of a science. It began with Galileo in the sense that before Galileo, scientists used to be people who read Aristotle and then reproduced what Aristotle said was correct. So that's where you got the idea of the Earth being the centre of the universe. Uh, also the idea that heavy things fall faster than light things. And Galileo was the first to say, well, let's test it. Let's make... He didn't actually drop things out of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, that that's a myth. But he made up an experimental device with a, a plank. He rolled two lead balls down the plank, very different weights. Of course, they arrived at the end of the plank at the same time. And that was his proof that, that Aristotle's claim that heavy things fall faster than light does not work. And then that was the beginning of the scientific method. 
Uh, and it's very difficult because when you are a scientist and you come up with a hypothesis, you are wedded to that hypothesis. You're actually trying to confirm it. You're not trying to disprove it, you're trying to prove it's correct. So it's disturbing for scientists to find that their, their paradigm is wrong. But the, over time they've developed this reasonably reliable art that experiment and verification matters. Well, in economics, they claim to do empirical work. There is some parts that do do the empirical work. But when they find stuff that contradicts their main theory, they reject it. And that's like they reject all this evidence that firms don't face rising marginal cost. And that means they just fundamentally, they're unscientific. They are like, in that sense, I see them being like the, uh, astronomers before Galileo, still working out of the great book. And the great book happens to be Paul Samuelson's uh, Foundations of Economic Analysis, not Keynes and, uh, and not Marx, obviously. But, and that's what they do. They continue reproducing this set of beliefs which have been empirically and theoretically contradicted. I mean, I'm not mainstream or non-mainstream ec economics. I don't have an opinion, I guess. I'm drawn to MMT, but uh, just because the world I've grown up in is MMT. So that's just what I see and know. Mm. Working in the arts, going back to that supply and demand of your, you know, four workers to every machine, mm. a lot of people in the arts know that that doesn't really apply because it's like opera today. Mm -hmm. It's like, where's the supply? Where's the demand for opera? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's a good argument that there's not really a demand for it. Yes, people want it every once in a while, but the amount of money that it takes to produce a Metropolitan Opera show is in the millions of dollars. They're not making millions of dollars by the amount of people that want to come see those shows. So I feel like in the arts, I would say mainstream economics doesn't work. Do we need a giant sculpture in the middle of a desert somewhere? And I would say there's not a demand for mm. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's something good to have. Like, I think we want art and we want this stuff, even though supply and demand or money-wise, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and a similar thing applies actually in economics too. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a critic of not just capitalism, human society in general when it comes to the impact we've had on the ecosphere. But in terms of human societies, uh, I, I see a lot of good in capitalism as a social system. But at the same time, I'm criticising the theory of capitalism, which is neoclassical economics. And people think, oh, you're criticising capitalism. So, no, this theory's got nothing to do with real capitalism. You need a theory of real capitalism, and you're frankly going to find a better one coming out of Marx and followers of Marx, particularly a guy called Mikhail Kolesky, a Polish economist, uh, and people like Richard Goodwin, who's the person whose work I've extended the most, uh, you'll find better theories out of them than the mainstream by a long shot. And it describes the real world far better than the nonsense stuff. All this stuff about equilibrium, for God's sake. Um, the, 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 the last society that looks like equi an equilibrium system is capitalism. It's far from equilibrium. You want equilibrium, go to the Soviet Union or go to you know, feudal, feudal England. Uh, then you'll get a bit of equilibrium. But... Whoever thought equilibrium was a defining characteristic of capitalism? And it's a, it's a defining characteristic of a model of capitalism that is wrong. This is interesting because you said Keynes and Marx. I don't necessarily know their theories of economics. But to me, isn't economics just describing how things work? Like, isn't that the whole point of it? Like, it's not... It, it should be, okay, but it's not. Because if you look at the history of how economic developed over time... I mean, I, I really think we actually went wrong with Adam Smith. I've rubbish Ricardo in, in this particular book, but I, I rubbish Smith in my next one. And the idea is that before Smith, there was a bunch of economists in France called the physiocrats. 
And they were, we're talking in the 1700s here, and they were trying to explain how do we produce all the stuff of, the, of a you know, modern world? How do we make the castles and the carriages? And their explanation was it's because of the free gift of the sun. We put a seed in the soil, we wait six months, and we harvest a thousand seeds. And we've done nothing. You know, there was no fertiliser back in those days. You, couldn't, you weren't looking at labour all that much. We just plant something in the field and watch it grow. So what you're doing is you're using, you're, as a capitalist, as, a, as a, a farmer who owns the farm they're working on, what you're exploiting is the free gift of nature. And that's literally the phrase they used. And then with that free gift, you can afford to pay workers and, and you, the, what's left over is your profit. And then the king can tax part of that profit. So they had a real, in, that, in terms of theories of physics, which developed a century later, we know they're correct. We don't actually produce a surplus. We exploit free energy and turn that into useful forms. Okay, but if the energy wasn't there, neither would you and I be, let alone capitalism. So it's the exploitation of free energy that matters. Well, that was obvious to the, Fran the French economists in a sense because their economy was fundamentally rural. 90% of people were peasants. And, you know, almost all the business was working in the fields. The manufacturing is quite limited. Whereas Smith came from the, you know, the, the nascent capitalism of Scotland, just before the invention of James Watt's steam engine, but well after many others have been made, the spinning jenny, all the mechanical stuff. And he couldn't see, you know, he, he's, he's like, well, there's no land inside a factory. So his rationale, so it's not land that's the source of value, it's labour that's the source of value. Now that's wrong, okay, labour contributes, but labour with that energy is a corpse. So you know, you've got to go back to energy to begin with. But by saying labour was the source of value, you then got what I call what we call the value wars in economics. And Marx was obviously the, the, the grand inheritor of that, saying if labour is the source of all value, then it should get all profit and capital should get nothing. So it became a contest over the you know, power and distribution of income between workers and capitalists. When Marx came along and really made it quite a strong intellectual threat to capitalism, what had been an underground theory of economics developed by a guy called Jean-Baptiste Say and another one, Augustine Corneau, back in the early 1800s, uh, where it's all about utility maximisation and so on, that suddenly became the mainstream. They drove out all the classical economists. People were talking about utility maximisation took over. Jevons in the UK, Volra in France, and a guy called Menger in Austria, and that became the mainstream. And the thing is, they, back then, like it could have made sense, their, their direction could have made sense, but it didn't. Uh, we, we found all these mathematical flaws and they still persist in doing it. And it should, we should just, it, it, it makes as much sense of a theory of capitalism as phlogiston makes as a theory of how, why a candle burns. The 19th century explanation as to what, uh, what caused flames, there's a substance inside things that burn called phlogiston. Well, we know that's garbage, okay? We know, and that's been thrown out, and anybody spouting a phlogiston theory of, 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 of chemistry and heat would be rapidly shown the door to in any university. But fundamentally, neoclassical economics is the phlogiston theory of economics. Yeah. I mean, I, li I like listening to you because, I, and I like what you said about capitalism, of you, you weren't critiquing the theory, or you were critiquing the theory, but... Because to me, it's like uh, in the arts, everybody hates capitalism, right? It's like it's ruining our lives and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I sign on to that as well. But I also think, you know, nothing in 100% form ever works. Yeah, that's a very good point. 100% capitalism can never work, but also 100% socialism 
can never work. However our world works, we're going to have to have a little bit of capitalism yeah. just because like, you, it, it's a combination of all this. And that's actually like my very first foray into economics was actually looking at what's called Marx's dialectics. And when you, when you think about uh, the, the neoclassicals and the Austrians, they're, let's go 100% capitalism. And then you get the, the Marxists, let's go 100% socialism. And what you're talking about is a sense of balance. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. My wife is a Buddhist. Uh, I'm living in Thailand, which is entirely Buddhist, uh, almost entirely. But the Buddhist, I remember seeing a little thing about how Buddha developed his philosophy. And apparently he was sitting beneath a tree, as, as, as sages tend to do. And a boat goes past and there's some uh, musical instructor trying to instruct a young student how to play a particular instrument. And he finally says, no, if you make it too taut, it's, it won't play a note. And to make it too loose, it's got to be just right between loose and tight. And that gave Buddha this idea that balance is what matters. And in that sense, the same thing can be found in Marx's dialectics, the idea of balance between the two. And in that sense, a mixed economy uh, is the most successful economy. And if we look at the most successful period in American capitalism, it was between 19, 1950 and 1970. And, and then you had a government committed to full employment large, you know, but a lot of being directed at trying to fight the Soviet Union, obviously, the military expenditures and so on. But both the government and the private sector working in where they, where they had their own strengths. And the government is best for stuff which, uh, you know, like universal education, you want everybody to get a decent standard of education. You don't want a bright kid being brought into a poor family. You don't get an Einstein because of that, that sort of thing. So there's some things which are best provided by the state, uh, and other things which are best provided by private sector. So, for example, like a university, I think, should be government-funded. The food in the university should be private enterprise, you know, and, and because if you want variety and, and taste, you, you don't put it through in a mess hall. The, the, the idea of sense of balance, I think, is, is the correct orientation, and we have two extremes of economic theory, Marxist on one extreme and neoclassical on the other, pushing for 100%, you know, socialism, 100%... Uh, uh, free free enterprise. The mixed economy is the most successful version. All right. So you have a Patreon, and the the title block says "Creating a Realistic Economics for a Post Crash World." So, w- what is your real realistic economics that that you want? Well, it it starts from where the physiocrats were. I take it right back and say the reason we even exist as a species is because of energy, free energy, and what we've done as a, as a as a species ourselves, we've learned how to harness stores of energy we found in the planet and exploit those high-density pieces of energy to enable us to create a civilization that sits above the level of all the other animals. So that's the starting point. But if you do that, you're necessarily uh, dumping that waste energy and waste matter into the biosphere. You have to look at your limits to, to growth, limits to how large your industrial sector can become. So that's an essential starting point. And then it's a monetary economy. So if you, I mean, you know, Paul Krugman, of course. Yeah. Well, Krugman is touting some masterclass program he's got right now because I, I actually saw it on my, my YouTube. Uh, and in that, at one point he's talking about economics, he says, it's about people. It's not about money. Bullshit. It's about money. Okay. <laughs> you have to understand the monetary economy. So they, the neoclassical economists have a theory in which money plays no role in capitalism. So one of my major contributions is building a software package I call Minsky uh, that enables you to do monetary, mathematical monetary modeling. Uh, can I share my screen for a sec just quickly? Yeah, please, yeah. Okay, this is my Minsky software. And what I've got here, I'm, I'm actually modeling 
the 1920s uh, here, but I've got the idea of the government running a deficit. So the deficit increased bank reserves and, the, and I say they spend all the money on firms. Banks lend to firms as well. Firms pay interest to the banks. Firms pay wages to workers. Workers consume and banks consume. So incredibly simple model. What I've set it up is to, to duplicate the numbers of the 1920s when Calvin Coolidge, as president, aimed to and achieved a surplus every year of 1% of GDP. And in his 1928 uh, State of the Union address, he said how this has been the foundation of our prosperity. We've got to maintain this surplus. And what I can show here, uh, I've got this as the surplus being run. What he wasn't aware of at the same time was the private sector was borrowing. As he was paying down debt by 1% of GDP per year, the private sector was paying up debt by 5% of GDP per year. So I've set it up so that I can actually simulate it and show, well, here's the combination that um, Coolidge put in train. What if we actually have, rather than the private sector borrowing, what if the private sector doesn't borrow? What happens? And you can simulate it again and see the economy actually declines. So what's caused the growth that he thought was due to his surplus was actually due to the private sector borrowing. And of course, that's what gave us the roaring 20s, the stock market crash and the Great Depression. This is an open source piece of software. And what I'm doing is trying to design tools that the next generation of economists can use to do dynamic, monetary, non-equilibrium modelling of capitalism. That's what we need. Amazing. Um, okay, so I'm going to wrap up. I thank you for your time. Um, it, because I assume most of our listeners are not economists, if someone isn't an economist and they want a basic introduction to economics or maybe the history of economics or just want to understand it, a little bit more. Is there any sort of book you can recommend that we could read? Well, I'll recommend two of mine. <laughs> um, um, Debunking Economics is my, 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 the book I'm most famous for. So I wrote that back, first edition 2000, second edition 2011, and that's still around. So that's, that's called The Naked Emperor of the Social Sciences. So Debunking Economics. But that, that is fairly detailed, fairly heavy, and it requires you to you know, you've you got to work your way through the book. It's about 600 pages. I've got a new one coming out in October in the UK and December in the USA called The New Economics and Manifesto. And that's about 40,000 words, a lot shorter. Uh, and that's what I say, as well as saying what's wrong with economics, I also say what economics should be. And I use my Minsky software through that to show what it can be. So debunking economics, if you really want to make yourself work hard. And it's still work to read New Economics and Manifesto, but it's not as long. Okay. I need to read Debunking Economics because it shows up all the time in things. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to have, let's have them do that. Look, I, can send you a, I can send you a PDF if you like. You don't have to pay me any money for it, but it's up to you. You can buy a copy if you like, or I can send you a PDF. Let me buy a copy. That's, okay. not, that's not good monetary policy on your part. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I'm pretty bad at making money. My, 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 my real, that's why I'm generally an academic. I want to change people's ideas. That's my most important position. And make them based on realism. That's, that's, the, that's the desire. That's the trick. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read it, and then I'll have you back on, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll understand more about economics, and I'll be able to ask better questions. <laughs> that was good. No, it actually, we got a long way from the cartoon books. I'll just actually, uh, while we've got a bit of a chance here, just quickly share the screen. And the cartoon book we're talking about is this one, Taking the Con Out of Economics. That's Larry Summers there. Um, and then we just part, part, this is the, the one you enjoyed the most, which was Ricardo introduction. Here we have the fair ear, and here's Larry with his fair ear, 
and this is the this is CERN, crazy economic rationalizations for anomalies. Then we have uh, Paul Krugman turning up. Paul and I've had a few fights over the years, and then um, this is the French French mob, and I actually quote um, Paul Romer, who's one of the few recipients of the um, uh, Nobel Prize for Economics I actually have any time for, saying how economics is post-real. And he actually uses phlogiston as a comment about the nature of mainstream economics, for which he received the Nobel Prize. So it's not just me saying the thing is, is nonsense. So, good to meet you, Ethan. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I, I want to say that so this is an audio-only podcast, but on the YouTube version, I will put those screen shares on so that if you want to see the visuals, check the YouTube link. Or if you're a patron, check the Patreon video and you'll be able to see that. I'll also provide links to the books. To every, everything we've talked about, I'll provide links for it. And also the other thing. Oh, go ahead. One more thing, my Patreon. You're on Patreon too. I am. I'll, I'll check you out. Yours is, you, you have more... Patrons. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine's in your patreon.com slash prof Steve Keynes. What's yours? Uh, patreon.com slash artistic finance. Artistic finance. Well, I'll take a look at that. I think I'll put a few bucks your way as well. Check, check, check them both out. <laughs> okay. Uh, where can people find the economics book or econ, econ comics? Econ comics two ways. They can find it. Uh, they can buy a, like a physical or an electronic copy through Amazon. But the, you, do you know Arcaven comics? Yes, I know Arcaven. Oh, uh, yeah, so it's been arcaven.com. So if you go to arcaven.com slash comics slash comedy slash econ comics, that's, that's what you'll get. And let's actually quickly, let's do one final sketch, screen share here. So that's, and, and what it, it's, they're doing a lovely job of serializing it every week. So there's the, uh, the one you enjoy, the, uh, the Ricardo. And then we have uh, CERN and the Ferrier. And that's where we're up to. And next, uh, there's a couple more to go in the... Um, area one before I get on to um, the who, which is why heterodoxy out. And that's free, of, that's free, of course. Okay, that's what I was going to say. So Arcaven is free, and then it's for sale over at Amazon. On Amazon, that's right, yeah. And we've got a new one coming up called Funny Money. After Econ Comics finishes, Funny Money will start on Arcaven. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. If anybody goes to Arcaven to find it or follows our links, it's better viewed on a desktop computer than a phone. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Steve Keen, uh, probably you are the smartest person <laughs> I've ever talked to on this show. Thank you so much for talking with us for an hour. Well, it's been delightful. It's good fun to meet you, Ethan. And all I said, I'll check out your webpage as well, your Patreon. I, I actually, I'm, I'm going to let you go in one second, but I actually do have one more question. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You said yeah. you started studying this at 18. Is there a, a book or an economist that you read or was there something you read that was like a turning point for you where you were like, this is all crazy? It was, it was a combination of things. I was, uh, this is first year at Sydney at university, the University of Sydney, 1971. We had a new lecturer turn up from France called Frank Stilwell. Frank has been, been a long-term friend of mine after this. He gave a lecture on what's called the theory of the second best. Like I, economists are, tend to be anti-trade union and anti-monopoly. Because they regarded you know, they distort the competitive market. We're better without trade unions, without monopolies. And what Frank explained was, if you're two steps away from an economist called, you know, their nirvana, what happens if you move one step further, closer to it? What happens if you abolish trade unions or you abolish monopolies? And the answer was, according to mainstream theory, you will make the welfare worse. And I remember going, what? <laughs> you know, like this sounds so convincing beforehand, get rid of them both, you know, and suddenly you find unless you get rid of them both at the same time, you'll make society worse. Although, 
this is crazy, something wrong with this. And so I went down to the, the uh, library and I then started reading that book and I found others and found a whole debate called The Cambridge Controversies Over the Nature of Capital in which Paul Samuelson had succeeded defeat and yet he continued teaching the same garbage after that. So that's what's <laughs> what made me... That, that was the particular event that made me a critic and it helped that I was studying mathematics at the same time. So it was very easy for me to read the mathematics and economics. It's quite simplistic for anybody who's done a genuine degree in mathematics. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was the aha moment. And the more I dug, the worse it got. And I must finish by saying the worst economics I've ever read is by William Nordhaus about economics of climate change. I think, ultimately, he will end up being sued for negligence for the damage he does to human society. For the, the worst work in the history of economics has done by the 2018 winner of the Nobel Prize, William Nordhaus. Oh, wow. Them's fighting words. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Steve, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Matt. That was our episode with Professor Steve Keen. My takeaway was that what most of us have learned about how the economy works is at odds with reality. Or at least it's complicated with many more factors than just supply and demand. You can find Steve on Twitter at Prof Steve Keen, P-R-O-F-S-T-E-V-E-K-E-E-N or on Patreon at patreon.com slash profstevekeen. Links to those and everything we discussed is in the show notes, including a link to the free version of Econ Comics, which is a five-minute read and illustrated by the incredibly talented Miguel Guerra, who was a guest on the podcast back in episode 26. During the interview, Steve shared his screen. You can find those screen shares on the YouTube version of this episode, they are also available on our Patreon at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.